Any of you hands up, you're a member of DCC. Oh, good. Great. Very good. Yeah, come on up to the meeting because we got stuff to do, so that's good. Hey, I have the very unenviable position of preaching about persecution today on this spectacular morning. Look at this. I don't even know if we can relate to that, but I have been grasping this whole week because the next beatitude and then the one following is related to the blessed ones who are persecuted. And then next week when Jim picks it up, he goes from the third person of blessed are those who are persecuted to the second person of blessed are you. Even specifies and drills down some more. But this week I've been reading, I've been checking into history, I've been finding out things on websites, trying to get current data, so I could give us a, a kind of a broader picture of the idea of persecution. And I have to tell you, this has been tough. It's been tough, and the main reason it's been tough is because I feel like I have no idea what it's about. Now, I don't know about you, you may perceive persecution actively living in the 21st century in the United States. That may be your perception. Um, it's hard for me to get across that bridge. It is. It's hard for me to pick up the idea of persecution. I do have the sneaking suspicion that we may become more familiar with it. I have that sneaking suspicion. If you have your Bibles there, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to look at a couple other verses in there, and then we're going to also look at some things that Peter and Paul said, and some other things Jesus said, because I figure, well, our best bet is to look at the Bible and see what it tells us. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is an exact copy, the kingdom of heaven reference, to the very first reference. And it says, you know, with those who are this type of person, kingdom of heaven type of people, and then Jesus lists several things for us in this chapter. I thought, well, we could start there, we could just look at that simple thing, but I also may want to say, well, what is this persecution thing? How can we relate to it a little bit? I did some research from the first couple of centuries of the church's history. Now, if this feels too distant and separate for you, I understand that. But remember, this is our backstory. This is the foundation of the faith. They were inventing a new faith. You remember that? I mean, that, that is the, just what was going on. There had been the uh, Jewish faith, the Hebrew faith, that had come up, and of course is the backstory of Christianity without any question. But now they're actually going about something, and I want to tell you something that is a fascinating uh, distinction, almost a disjunction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament puts great value, purpose, energy, life on the sense of persecution as a follower of this faith. The Old Testament almost puts no value on that. Even familiar with persecution, but theirs was related more to their situation as a race, as a people group. And now Christianity is a faith that is open to all races. And yet persecution is a foundational element. I went and looked at, there's a book 
called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, and he wrote it with a couple other sociologists. By the way, they did their research with no real intent to defend or uh, attack the Christian faith. They just said, this is a critical element of history. What can we learn from the people who went through this time period in those first few centuries? Because they know that the Christians did something unprecedented, and the only other time it's ever happened is, is in the growth of Islam. But immediately upon their startup, they were under great persecution in different times. We'll talk about that just a little bit. But they also grew lazy, and within a few centuries, were the central religion of the Roman Empire. That was unprecedented, that you go from a complete different system, and then these people come in and literally absorb in and become the core of the empire. Have you ever thought about what were the critical elements as a new Christian that made, first of all, it worth it, to sign up for Christianity, especially knowing that everybody around you is being persecuted. Why would somebody do that? They actually asked that question from a, the, I mean, one of the first things they ask, and a lot of sociologists have decided those people were crazy. They were just nuts. Nobody should, nobody rational and thinking should sign up for something that would be that risky. So why would somebody do that? Second of all, why would they persist over generations of people? Why would they continue? What was it about them? You may have heard some of these factors. First of all, they had a code of ethics. They had a sense of how they should live. And you know what they found out? When their neighbors watched them, when they followed that code of ethics, when they treated husbands and wives, treated each other well, when they loved their children, when they were good to their servants, when they were honest in business, when they were good to their neighbors, you know what happened? They actually had a good life. Now, we, do, do you realize how amazing it is that that was the observation? Because there's a comparison and they're saying, man, those people that are in that Christian enclave down the street, those are quality people. It's worth a question right there and stop and ask. Do people say that the same of your church and my church? That's worth a question. They also found out when they observed and watched that these people said, man, we can grab a hold of each other and we can love each other and we can raise the value of the people within our community. The value of women within the church was much higher as a general standard than the neighborhoods around them. The value of children. Children were kind of thought of as tossed off. And sometimes they were valuable, but for sure, if you were really looking for somebody who you wanted to take over your big wealth or your business, you actually just adopted someone that was more worthy than your own kid. That was often the way it happened. They raised the specter of servants. And they said, wow, these people are valuable too. They shrunk the class distinction. It wasn't so great between here and there. What they didn't do though was this. They did not use a socialistic, communistic type of approach to life. 
even though you might hear that in there. And they all took care of each other. But what they didn't do was they, they didn't say, we're going to try to distribute this evenly throughout to everybody and everybody gets an even share. That's not what they did at all. They said those who have will be benevolent and bless those who do not have. And those who do not have will be humble and receive from those who have. And actually, they raised and they shrunk that gap. Most importantly, maybe to the neighbors, how many of you realize and remember from history that the Black Plague was a big deal in the first three or four centuries in the Roman Empire? How many of you have heard that? A few of you, a scattering. We often think of the Black Plague in the medieval time periods. Actually, it was horrible through those first few centuries. And you know what happened? When somebody started realizing, "Uh uh-oh, people are dying in my town, and if they had power and wealth, the typical thing was they got the heck out of there. (laughs) The Romans. The Romans were like, we're gone. We're out of here. We're not hanging around and watching this. We're going to leave and leave these people to their own. And of course, the belief was they somehow made the gods mad, and so now they're all dying as a result of that. You know what the Christians did? The Christians moved in. The Christians took people into their homes. The Christians gave them care and loved them. And it was a, not an amazing thing that often in a region or in a town or in an area, after the plague came through, a number of the people who survived converted to Christianity. I wonder why. Probably because of the love of their neighbors. And I think, wow, so persecution then has something going on. It has something going on. Jesus didn't just say, blessed are the persecuted because they, what, experience pain? Often when we've talked about these, uh, all of these beatitudes, Jim and I have set it up in this way. We've said, you know, there was ancient uh, history that often brought beatitudes and the blessed ours into place. But what they often spoke was, blessed are the people who have the power, the, the people who have the money, the people who have health, the people who are happy. And Jesus flips that over on his head. It's the great reversal as he flips it over. And he didn't just say, now blessed are people who try harder. Would anybody here want to try to be persecuted today? Let me see your hands. How many of you want to try to be, you know, let's bring in some more persecution. That's a ridiculous idea. And by the way, Jesus was no masochist. He was not saying, oh, you experience some kind of weird pleasure if you go through persecution. That is not the case. He also didn't demand, oh, the only way that you can get to God is through persecution. He did not do that. But what he did say was, the persecuted are blessed. Now, he said a little bit more. I'm going to read some more verses here. Actually, he starts with that. Blessed are those, verse 10, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that that adds a little bit different of a twist on it right there. Because what he's not saying is, blessed are those who are punished for what they did wrong. That's very, very important in this. He's not saying that's a better way to go. That's a more enviable position. And those who get punishment for what they did wrong, always, always, always remember this. This is very clear from this verse and all the way through the others that we're going to read. Persecution is not punishment. Punishment is its own deal. 
Punishment is legit, and actually punishment should be just, but I'm going to tell you this right now. This is going to be hard to hear. Persecution is not necessarily just as we understand it. If you have any questions related to persecution, right now in your mind, you could say, well, what are the things that people wonder about, about persecution? Almost the very first one is, why does it seem like it's so unfair? Why does it seem like people are persecuted who don't deserve it, and other people who, in our estimation, clearly deserve it, and they're not persecuted. Why is that? Because persecution is not punishment. Persecution is something else. The other question you probably ask, and all of us ask, is this. Does persecution have any purpose? Does it have meaning? Or is it just useless human suffering? And what I can promise you is, persecution is rife with purpose. It's full of purpose. So, the two simple questions, is, per, is uh, persecution fair? The answer is no. The second question, is persecution meaningless? That also is no. Persecution has great purpose. Let me read a little more that Jesus had to say. He says this in uh, the end of chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said that you'll love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is in the section where Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the law. And what we've actually learned is we've kind of reviewed some of this. Jesus made the law harder. <laughs> than what it had been recorded. Every single one of these things is more difficult. And this is a big one. Where he says, you've heard, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the person who loves you. Love the person that you like. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Same word that's blessed are the persecuted. The same word. Pray for those who persecute you. Not just people who don't like you. Pray for those who persecute. Now, the word has a very interesting little twist on it. It sounds always very, very negative to us. Actually, in the Greek, the word could go both ways. It could be real positive, like, I am pursuing after an animal because we're on the hunt. Or I'm pursuing someone on the lake in a sailboat because we're in a race. It actually meant that as much as, and as often as, as it meant, I'm pursuing someone to hunt them down and make their life miserable. And Jesus says, don't just love the people who love you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is the kind of behavior of kingdom of God type people. For, he even gives us some more. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Right there, Jesus made it very clear. This is not fair as you understand fairness. It's not about that. There's something else going on. God sends rain on people who are good, and he sends rain on people who are horrible. He does it with wealth. He does it with health. He does it with family. He does it with opportunity. He does it with all kinds of things. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward is in that? You hear the next layer of it? He's like, don't think you get some big pat on the back from God for loving people who love you. Now this just changed. Because now there's something that God views this as a virtuous act that goes beyond what we would typically do. It goes beyond that. Jesus also says this in John chapter 15. You have to leave this book, go over a couple of books, and he talks some more about persecution. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. This is back to that whole you love what you love thing. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What did he just describe there? I chose you out of the world, and now the world hates you. He just described jealousy. He's like, clearly the motivation behind this is a big pool of jealousy. Persecution does not come from something that's righteous. Persecution comes from something that's unrighteous, and still it's a tool in the hand of God. Have you ever thought about that? God is using an unrighteously motivated thing to accomplish his business. He says, these people are just jealous of you. You're a chosen people. The Jews were very familiar with this, by the way. They had been a chosen people for a very long time. How many people do you know today in your life that say, you know what bothers me the most about Christians or any kind of a, a religion that says that they're the only one is who are they to think? They're so arrogant. They think they're the only ones. They're the chosen people. That's the common position. The common assumption is, if anybody says, well, this one is actually the chosen posture of God, well, then that person is to be treated poorly, ignored. We're moving through, we have in our culture in the United States, we've moved through the coexist signs that were on the back of the cars. Everybody should coexist. To where we're starting to say, actually, some should not be allowed to exist. We're turning that corner in our culture. He says, don't be surprised. I said this to you. They'll persecute you like they persecuted me. But all these things they'll do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They hated me without any type of just cause. It's not fair. It wasn't fair to him. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to other people. Do you know the numbers about persecution right now of Christians in particular you know any of the details let me tell you a little bit first of all 215 million Christians 215 million experience high levels of persecution in their countries what's the number one country for persecution of Christians guess North Korea it's been that way for 20 years during the watch list of this, this is Open Doors Ministry. They have a website. It's very informative. It will help you. During the watch list period that ends up being reported in 2018, 3,066 Christians were killed, reportedly, for their faith. 1,252 were abducted, maybe never to be found again. 1,020 were sexually assaulted, 
and 793 churches were attacked as a group. You may not know this, but we regularly have someone who attends our church services, who records the worship time, posts it onto the internet. People in North Africa who are under persecution at three in the morning tune in and often, the last time he reported to me, it was almost 200 people that were watching. If you have the mistaken belief that, that persecution was just for Diocletian's time and for the time period during the Roman Empire and whatever else, or that's just in the worst, worst places, actually that's not really the case. There are growing persecutions, especially in Central Asia, against Christians. So what does that mean? Um, what does this mean to us? If I had the time to read all of the things from uh, Peter and Paul, I could tell you that they said, of course we're in suffering. We share the gospel with Jesus. It's a holy calling. They were appointed. This is exactly what Paul said about it. I'm appointed to be a sufferer. It's been entrusted to me by Christ to follow along with him. Peter said, uh, Be subject for the Lord's sake to everything that goes around you. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And yet, you will suffer unjustly. Why? You have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Now, people have looked at suffering and persecution in particular for a very long time. And often they've taken some kind of an approach, a response. Because now I'm asking you, what's your response? How do you think about this? How do you feel about this? What are you going to do about this? Often people have said, well, best bet is kind of just, we're pitiful little creatures. We're stuck down here. We might as well just keep our head down and, and do the best we can. Some people have said, well... You know, we've lost what was going on, but, uh, you know, that was paradise once upon a time, but now it's just not going to go that way, so we just got to, you know, take what we get. Some people have said, this is a pretty popular thought right now, if it doesn't kill me, then it makes me stronger. So, in other words, I gain wisdom from persecution. I find all three of those quite unsatisfactory. I don't know what your reaction is. But for me, I find just making me stronger, so what? Especially if it kills me, that didn't make me much stronger. But the truth is that the writers of the Gospels, after they watched Jesus, here's the critical linchpin to how to understand this. They watched Jesus come to this earth. And Jesus didn't come as a big, rich king that had everything going on. And he was like, don't get any of that stuff on me. You know, he was, he, this was not who Jesus was. Jesus came and said, not only am I going to tell you that you'll be blessed when you're persecuted, I'm going through it myself. I am volunteering. I volunteered before the time ever began. And that was a critical juncture as all of those early people watched the early church they watched and said, wow, these people are volunteering. They're standing in line. The leaders 
are volunteering. Nobody is being coerced into this. Jesus set the tone for that. And he didn't say, I'm staying up and out. He said, I'm coming in. And not only am I going to come in and kind of experience it, because I'll walk with you because I love you. And that, yes, he definitely said that. And I'll hope that you will actually walk with each other and love each other. But he said, I'm going to take responsibility for this persecution and I'm going to follow it till the end. And you know the story. Jesus wasn't just killed. He didn't just die peacefully in his sleep. Jesus was persecuted horribly, unfairly. And then he said, what about you? What responsibility will you take? Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was in Auschwitz, was in a couple other places. And he watched people and he said, you know, Freud told us that the reason people make decisions is they're trying to get pleasure and they're trying to avoid pain. And Adler told us the reason people make decisions is because they want power and they want to avoid being marginalized. But Frankel watched people day after day survive in Auschwitz or die. And he kept saying, why? Why do some of them make it? Why do some of them not? Why does persecution have a different effect on these people than on these people? And he realized it's about meaning. It's about purpose. And he realized that it wasn't just, oh, feeling like there's a general sense of purpose. There's a specific purpose why I am here on this rock. Just like Jesus felt, there's a specific purpose for you too. Why you are here. And he said this, ultimately a person should not ask what the meaning of their life is, but rather recognize that it is they who are being asked by life. Each person is questioned and each person must give an answer for themselves. The only meaningful answer is not some abstract idea or, by the way, the number 42. That is not the meaning of life. But responsible fulfillment of a concrete assignment or a mission that demands a specific fulfillment. Every individual must give an account for their individual life. Thus, freedom is only half of the truth. And it's always in danger of degenerating into some meaninglessness and uselessness that's lived in terms of being unresponsible, irresponsible, not responsible for anything. He wrote this sentence. This is why I recommend that the United States add to the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. Now, I don't know what your responsibility is to persecution right now. I don't know that. But I suggest that you find it. I suggest that you be prepared. I suggest that you ask God for grace and mercy. You ask Him how you will enter into other people's persecution. And I suggest that you take up the cross as Jesus meant it. Let's pray. Lord, 
We come to you today. We love you. We honor you. We want to worship you. We, we bring our time and our energy to you. And uh, we do that because you are worthy. You set an example for us. You told us that we're blessed if we're persecuted. And then you helped us understand that. The apostles helped us as they one by one died. Many others, uh, martyrs in the church, others around the world who are persecuted or martyred now. Help us to know. Help us to wrestle. Help us not to just ask for some comfortable Christianity that uh, makes us a little happier tomorrow. Help us to not get caught just in that trap. We pray that in your name. Amen.